0: Our third section here, uh, beyond the pageantry and sentimentality, uh, the wedding ceremony was meant to be a covenant-making ceremony. And uh, Stuart Scott uh, just kind of gets us started with how to think about this. He says, how a man thinks about marriage will certainly affect his perspective of his role, his wife's role, and the relationship itself. Uh, his point is simply this. How you think about marriage will shape everything that you do in marriage. So here's the question. Have you thought through marriage? How would you complete the sentence, Marriage is blank. You know, some of us would say, Marriage is a beautiful thing. Uh, But what happens when it loses its appeal or in the midst of a conflict it becomes ugly? Well, okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, marriage is its a beautiful thing. It's a living arrangement, too. Uh, well, then it kind of becomes expendable if it becomes uncomfortable. And really, why have a marriage? What's the difference between being married and just living together as roommates? Well, there's also kind of the financial arrangement. Roommates, you can kind of each do your own thing. Um, but even if we think of it as just a financial arrangement then it becomes like this whole investment, and am I getting a good return on my investment? And if I'm not, then then I don't feel like this is working out for me. Well, maybe marriage is a context for having children. Well, yes, it is that too, but but then I have all these couples who will say, but, but are the kids really happy if we're not happy? And they... They begin to use even that aspect as a reason for not viewing marriage as a permanent covenant thing. And so when we say what is marriage, it has to have that element of covenant to it. But covenant is one of those quirky little church words that we kind of nod when we hear it because we think we're supposed to know what it means, especially when we're in a place like this. But then we go, what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Well, um, it, um, Tim Keller gets us going in that direction. He says, society still considers the parent-child relationship as a covenantal one, not a consumer relationship or a contract. And so he says, where do we get started with understanding what a covenant is? Well, he says, culturally, the, biggest, the best place for us to appeal to is that parent-child relationship. Because if you think about it, at most in our lifetime, we're going to make four covenants. We'll make a covenant with God when we come to Him in saving faith, when we embrace Christ as having paid the penalty for our sin. Uh, We'll make a covenant with a church when we join with them in membership. We may make a covenant with another person when we join with them in marriage. And we will have a covenant-like relationship when we have children and we make this commitment of permanence and being part of their life and going through that. And so what's the difference? Okay, I kind of see that, I can experience that. How would I put that into words? Well, a contract is a document that we make pretty much because of mistrust. I make a contract to make sure you're going to do what you say you're going to do. A covenant is a relationship that I make out of trust. I am committing and giving myself to you. A contract is a document that I make in order to limit my liability. I don't want to be responsible for any more than I have to be responsible for. A covenant is an agreement of unlimited responsibility. So again, let's play that out in terms of the parent-child piece. How do you feel when you hear a child seeking to divorce their parents? I mean, that's made the news a few times recently. How does it resonate with you when you hear of a child or of a parent who is divorcing or abandoning their children? See, our instincts... Still hold to those relationships of parent and child as a covenant grade relationship. We expect a parent to do whatever is necessary to love and bond with their children. That same covenant keeping expectation is what we should find in our marriage. Because a covenant building, a covenant relationship, is one of mutual joy through mutual sacrifice. Not mutual demand for mutual benefit. And we need to see that and understand that. And again, this is where I think we have to remember that the marriage ceremony was meant to give us a picture of that. And when we don't see the marriage ceremony as a covenant-making ceremony and we try to live a gospel-centered marriage, it begins to feel like a bait and switch. When we treat the wedding as if it was all pageantry, as if it belonged to Hollywood instead of a holy God, as if it was good cinema instead of a sacred covenant, it just doesn't feel like we get what we're bargaining for. And so what I want to do here is I want us to walk through the wedding ceremony. And I want us to draw out all of these covenant-making images so that we can see it. And I want us to realize that marriage is a covenant. Whether we understood all of this when we went through our wedding or not, whether we even got married at a church or not, marriage is a covenant because that is the kind of relationship God made it to be not because that's what we chose when we embraced it in the same way that having a child is a covenant relationship not necessarily because we knew what that was we're doing when we made a baby but because that's what it is and so we go through the wedding ceremony uh, and we're just we'll walk through it in order you have the seating of the family and we begin to see the grooms, side, the groom's family and friends on one side and the bride's uh, family and friends on the other. And it's as if they are a the bride and groom are walking through as a zipper, bringing two things together that the bond of a marriage is so strong that the family and friends now share something precious and common that they now, change the way that they relate to one another. They take on different titles. They begin to relate to one another as family, even though there is no blood relationship. And that sense of dividing up on each side gives us another aspect of covenant imagery. In Genesis 15, where we have the first covenant, where God made a covenant with Abraham... God had Abraham take animals and split them half by half and split the animals down the middle and spread them through. And God, in the form of a torch, walked between them, making an agreement with Abraham, basically saying, so shall it be with me if I do not keep my word. That if one of the parties of this agreement breaks it, it will be by death that it is parted. And again, in that, we see some of the gospel imagery in that the covenant was broken. And instead of us as the ones who were the covenant breakers bearing the penalty for that, God said, so shall it be with me in your place so that the covenant could be renewed. But we have that sense of this bride and groom walking through people who are not related saying we are are drawing these things together in a covenant it, and we see another aspect of gospel here, that it is death that brings life, by leaving that brings cleaving, and almost everybody in the room at a wedding, they get that at this innate emotional level, as they feel both sadness and joy at the same time. It, they want to cry. There's this sense that something is is sad because they're moving on. You know, there's leaving the family, but there's something beautiful being made in this fact that death brings life. That gospel truth. It. Even those who don't understand the gospel haven't been exposed to it at that very emotional level. They just relate to it, and so the families are seated. And the bride comes in in her white dress. She comes in to meet her groom for the entire world to see. She is coming to have her name and identity changed. She is drawn by love. She is lovely in the eyes of her groom. And everyone in the room sees her through the eyes of her beloved. Her eyes are fixed on his, and no one else's opinion matters. Because love is giving covenant, or covenant is giving love the power that it should have always had. In this white dress, again, oftentimes we take that to mean her purity, in the image of covenant. It is not her purity. It is the gift righteousness of Christ that has been given to her. We do not come to Christ as His bride in our righteousness. We come to Him in the righteousness that He gave us. He does not accept us on the basis of our spotless record. He accepts us because we are His beloved and all of our sins were washed by His love. And this is one of the greatest truths we have to learn in marriage. In marriage, we don't live in our own white dress. We don't live in our own righteousness. When we begin to wear our own righteousness, shame will cause us to lie. And insecurity will cause us to hide things from our spouse. And comparison will begin to cause us to compete with one another. And pride will cause us to begin to judge our spouse. But when we remember that the covenant was made in His righteousness, in His garments, not ours, then we begin to reciprocate to our spouse the love that we received in the covenant that was made with us that we are creating an image of within our marriage. And so the bride comes in in her white dress, and the pastor says, "Who gives this man to give, gives this woman to be married to this man?" And the father says, "Her mother and I do." And again, this is a picture of Genesis 2:22 when God brings Eve to Adam. Uh, and in this we see four commitments uh, that are a part of that wedding covenant. Uh, the first is that the bride is received. We received one another. We must realize that you... Receive your spouse as a gift. You cannot earn your spouse. You can't earn a person. You didn't earn them with your good looks or your earning capacity, your charming personality, or any other desirable attribute. You receive them as a gift from God as a gracious provision. Uh, Dennis Rainey, he says, You must individually receive your spouse as God's provision. You must accept his gift. Receiving your spouse demonstrates your faith in God's integrity. Adam did not focus on God. Adam's focus was on God's flawless character, not Eve's performance. Adam knew God and he knew that God could be trusted. In the 100%, 100% plan, there is no talk of meeting each other halfway. You are both Willing to do anything it takes to make the marriage work. And so the first commitment is to receive. The second commitment is to leave. Uh, To leave and cleave will be these next two. Uh, It means to establish an adult relationship with your parents. It means you're more concerned about your spouse's thoughts and practices than you are your parents'. It means you're not controlled by your parents' affection, approval, or existence. It means you, are, you have eliminated any bad feelings towards your parents that tie you to them emotionally. You know, sometimes people don't leave their parents because they are this positive bond towards their parents, that they are so... Uh, loving towards their parents, that their parents' opinion matters most to them, sometimes they don't leave because they're so angry and embittered that they're so focused on not having what their parents had or what their parents did to them that they are not free to experience what God would give them in this marriage. And it means you don't try to change your spouse to meet your parents' preferences. And so not only do we receive and leave, we also cleave. Uh, And it's common for the negative command of leaving to get more attention than the positive command of cleaving. But when this happens, marriage begins to be it begins to feel like a limitation. That that marriage is about what you can't do or shouldn't do. And when that happens, it just it becomes this recipe that we're gonna feel like we're going to begin to discourage or rebel against marriage because I'm not gonna be restricted by what I can't do. But hear me say this, it is as important to cleave to, to pursue your spouse, as it is to leave your parents. Um, And then finally, that fourth commitment is to become one. Now, becoming one is something that we're going to unpack in the rest of the seminars. Uh, When we talk about communication, that is the method of unity. When we talk about finances, that is sharing our treasures. When we do decision-making, that's the practice of unity. When we talk about intimacy, that's the joy of unity. Right now, I just want you to see that that is one of the four major commitments. That when the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I do. And she steps to him and he receives her. That is what's happening in that moment. And then the pastor gives a charge. And it might sound something like this. We are here to observe something that is not just beautiful and joyous, but also profound. Brad and Sally do not stand before one another as perfect individuals, but they are making an unending choice to cover the faults of the other with their own sacrificial love. They pledge to respond to each other as perpetual examples of Christ's sacrifice to them. This choice is not a burden to them, but rather a joy because of the delight they take in one another. Their delight is meant to be the clearest earthly picture of God's abundant love for us and our joyous response to His love. Brad and Sally are here today to make their covenant known publicly to family and friends and the world. This covenant is marked by the physical symbol of a golden ring. Gold, because it is the only metal that does not tarnish and is the standard of value for all other commodities. A ring, because it is the, like all true covenants, it has no end point. Once this covenant is established, Sally will take Brad's name in the same way that each person who covenants with God takes his name as Christian. From that point forward, they will live for the joy of the other and take their deepest satisfaction in seeing the dreams of the other fulfilled in the same way that God delights in His people and we find our greatest fulfillment in Him. In this ceremony, let us see, let us not, only, let us see not only the beautiful uniting of our dear friends Brad and Sally in marriage, let us also see a picture of what God established as the relationship he desires with each one of us. Let us not only celebrate with Brad and Sally, but be encouraged and drawn into the love of our great God. And at that moment, uh, the pastor will then call for the pledge. And the pastor would say to the groom, I want to ask you a series of questions that you are not hearing for the first time. As you hear them again today, I want you to respond with the words, I do. Groom, husband, do you promise before God in this community to receive your bride as your wife? Do you promise to love her and to care for her? Do you promise to seek with God's help to be the spiritual head of your household for your bride? Do you promise to listen to her and to respect her, to honor her for the unique and special woman of God that she is? And you would say, I do. A similar question would be asked of the bride. And we begin to see that in this moment, the couple is declaring that they have found something better than their personal freedom. And they want the entire world to know it. They want to invite the entire world into the joy they found, not just in this person, but in the covenant relationship that is a picture of the gospel. And after the pledge comes the vows. In the pledge, the couple was talking to the people. In the vows, the couple is talking to each other. As I read the vows to you, Realize these are the climactic ceremony, but I want you to listen to them in light of your last several arguments. And I do that not to silence you or to shame you, but again, to put the daily events of life back into their proper perspective and proportion. I take you to be my wife. I promise before God and these witnesses that I will love you and be faithful to you. I promise to stand with you in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times, forsaking all others. I promise to give my life to you fully and faithfully as long as we both shall live with that, they exchange the rings. And then there's the pronouncement. The pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And we realize that covenants are made, meaning they have a definite beginning. In the same way that it would be inaccurate to say, I've always been a Christian. It would be inaccurate to say, We've always been married. Saving faith is a covenant made with God. And before that covenant was made, we could not claim any of the special benefits of Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. We could not claim the forgiveness of sin. We could not claim the assurance of heaven. We could not claim the fruit of the Spirit. They were not ours. Because covenants... Have a beginning. Similarly, covenants have a beginning. And before we make that marriage covenant, we have no claim on the special benefits of the marriage covenant, living together and sexual intimacy. And we should not trivialize that moment by taking the covenant blessings before having made that covenant. And so the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And it's at that moment, uh, oftentimes the bride will be wearing a veil. Uh, That's not her trying to be coy and cutesy. That's not her being insecure about how she looks. Uh, That is a piece of imagery uh, that is both Old Testament and New Testament. In Exodus 26, it said that between the holy place and the most holy place, there was a veil. And that the high priest was only allowed once a year to pass through that veil. But that when Christ died on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom, showing that we had a level of access and intimacy with God that was to be unhindered and unhinged and free. And just before the, hus- before the pastor says you may kiss the bride and the husband lifts the veil, the groom acting as the Christ figure is removing the veil, showing that a level of freedom and access and intimacy and joy is being unleashed between this husband and wife like they have never had before that is to be a picture of that covenant access and enjoyment that we have of God. And it's at that moment that the pastor says, You may now kiss the bride. And the people respond, How? <laughs> Woo! Because up until this moment, the wedding has carried the seriousness and the somberness of a sacred covenant. But God is a gracious and good God who does not want us to live sterile and somber lives. He wants us to see that He is a God who created pleasure and closeness and warmth and intimacy. And so as a part of that, as a part of the wedding ceremony, there is that moment when the pastor says, you may now kiss the bride, and he should kiss the bride like he means it. And the people should respond because they're affirming that God has made something good and pleasurable that should be celebrated. And that that is part of covenant. It's not an entirely somber thing. It is sacred. But it is sacred and joyous. And then there is the presentation of the couple where the pastor says, it is my honor to present to you Mr. and Miss, and he gives the new name. And we realize, like all true covenants, it will change the way the world sees you. No one enters a covenant to remain the same. And that couple walks out of the church as new people with a new name, and a new identity. In the same way that when we embrace Christ with saving faith, we are given a new name and we have a new identity that washes the old away and we are one with Him. In the same way that we create a one flesh relationship with our spouse. Now one final thought here from Gary Thomas. He says, what most divorces mean Is that at least one, probably, at least one party, and possibly both, have ceased to put the gospel first in their life. And and I will say this because many, if not most of us here, are married already. And I would say there are two particular times when our selfishness causes us to treat marriage as less than a covenant it's during conflict. And when we're lazy and one of the things that we need to realize is we will never outperform our commitment because a lot of times when I sit down and I talk with couples they know what they're doing is wrong That's disrupting their marriage and they know what they should be doing in its place They don't need more information. They need to view marriage as a covenant-grade commitment because it will not work as a contract-grade commitment. And so what I've given you here uh, is an exercise that whether you go through the exercise or not, In those moments, if you were to say, you know what, the things that disrupt our marriage, we know better, and we know what to replace it with. What we need to see is that covenant-level commitment. This is an exercise to give you a picture of that. Uh, You'll see it's just a puzzle piece with the charge and the pledge and the vows. And what I'd encourage you to do is print that on a piece of paper. On the other side, put a picture of you and your spouse smiling. And cut it up, not vindictively like you did that high school boyfriend when you didn't like him anymore. Cut it up as a picture. And each time you come to a moment where in conflict or laziness, whatever your given temptation would be, would be to dishonor the wedding covenant. If you catch yourself in that moment and you humbly acknowledge, like we talked about in that first segment, and you pray to God for the grace and the strength and the wisdom to do well, what he would empower you to do, and you persevere through that moment in a way that honors your covenant and your spouse, you put that next piece of the puzzle in the frame. And if there's times when you don't do that well, you take the picture, you take the piece off. And your goal is to complete that picture of you that is putting together the words of your wedding covenant so that when it is complete, and again, psychologists tell us it takes about 21 times of doing something to make it a habit. There's 25 pieces on the puzzle here that when we get to the point where we've made that puzzle, then we keep it as a trophy of God's grace in our house, reminding us of what it takes in order to experience what God designed to bless us with in marriage. And with that, we see our need for God And I think the only fitting way to conclude our time together uh, with that in mind would be to pray. Uh, So if you would, join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you. And we are so grateful that you are a covenant-keeping God. That when we were unfaithful, that you bore the wrath of our sin to restore the covenant To be a picture of what you blessed us with in marriage. Lord, we thank you for marriage. It is a great gift. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see everything about marriage that you made to be good. And we would not limit it merely to our preferences, but that you would expand our appetite to enjoy everything about marriage and our spouse that you declared good. And from that, we would come to know more and more of what you have for us. And the life we have in our homes would be an increasingly clear picture to the world around us, our friends and families and coworkers of the difference that the gospel can make. Lord, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.